Dose of Leadership Podcast, episode 45. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast. Before we get started with the interview, I want to talk to you about a couple things. First of all, I just want to let you know that I am available for one-on-one leadership coaching and consulting engagements. I can do this over the phone. I can do it over Skype. Or if you're close enough, we can do it in person. I can advise you and your team on any of the following areas that I specialize in, personal development, establishing a leadership culture, change management, crisis management, communication, and leadership development. No matter where you are or what stage you're at, I guarantee you my leadership coaching will have a positive impact on you and your organization. What can you expect from me? Look, I'm an empathetic coach who has faced similar and challenging opportunities just like you. You know, I've got a lot of both personally and professionally. So i got 25 years of real-world practical leadership experience, and I guarantee you my guidance will help identify and work towards specific goals and challenges, whatever you need to overcome. Go to DoSoLeadership.com and click on the coaching menu item, and you can learn more information. Again, thanks for all your support. I really appreciate all the feedback that I get. I will answer every email, Twitter post, whatever you need. I will get in touch with you. So please continue to give me the feedback. I want to make this show better. Again, thanks for all your support, and here's the interview. Well, I'm so excited to have on my show Jay Papasan. He's the co-author with Gary Carroll of a brand new book called The One Thing. And before Jay Papasan co-authored this book, he co-authored the best-selling millionaire real estate with Gary Keller. He's worked as an editor at HarperCollins Publishers, and there he worked on such best-selling books as Body for Life and Go for the Goal. Jay also co-owns a successful real estate team affiliated with Keller Williams Realty, and he's from Austin, Texas. Jay, thanks for coming on The Dose of Leadership. Are you ready to give us a dose today? Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's awesome, you know, and I'm excited that uh, we put this together. Anyway, tell me a little bit about the background between you and Gary. How did you and Gary meet? How, how are you guys partners, and, and what brought you to this point? Um, Gary and I uh, hooked up about 12 years ago. I've actually been with the company since 2000, but when I migrated here from New York, um, there wasn't much of a publishing industry here, so I actually took a job in the tech department of the then, then very small Keller Williams Realty to write. And about a year later, I found out that Gary wanted to write books, and we started hooking up. Um, for those of your listeners who haven't heard of Keller Williams, we don't advertise. We're a very curious little real estate company. Gary formed it 30 years ago in Austin, Texas, from a single office, and we just announced this February that we're the number one um, real estate franchise in the United States by agent count. Wow. So his leadership has really um, done some pretty cool things in his little entrepreneurial venture. Well, you know, it's exciting. I'm, I mean, I'm familiar with some of the books. You know, this is the first time, obviously, that I've talked with you, but, you know, I remember those books. I remember seeing The Millionaire Real Estate Agent. I remember seeing Body for Life. <clears throat> when did that one come oh, that out? Was I was, huge. When did that one come out? I was trying to remember the year, but I think I – was that in the l- late 90s? I think it came out in 1998 or 1999. Yeah, I was going to say the late 90s, and I remember I, I got that book, Body for Life, and trying to – get this 145 pound frame up to 160 pounds but uh it was a a great book i remember so it's exciting to see like i said you don't do the advertising but i'm very familiar with a lot of the books that you have out there 
Well, as a real estate company, you won't see any television companies promoting our brand. Right. Um, we definitely promote the books. We promote our products and we promote our agents. I think Gary figured out um, pretty early on that, and the stats have remained remarkably the same for almost two decades, that I think 96% of consumers um, do not pick an agent based on the company they work for. Huh. It just doesn't matter to them. They have a relationship. Mom and dad, you know, use this agent to sell a house or they're my friends. They make those choices based on relationships and that agent's ability to market themselves. So he put all the focus of our company off of our brand and onto the agents. And that's been a big part of our success. Great. Well, you know, I came across the book, The One Thing, and I started reading it and we talked a little bit in the pre-interview. I said, you know, it's, it's, I, I kind of made this say, well, that's kind of a self-help book, but it's tied to leadership. And you so pointedly pointed out, well, look, you know, before you can really step into the realm of leadership, you got to be able to lead yourself, right? Absolutely. Uh, leadership begins with self-leadership the way we put it. Um, and in terms of leading a company, you know, Gary articulated this and it kind of shows in everything that we've done here, the way to build a great big company is to build a great small one. Mm. And the way you do that is one productive individual at a time, starting with yourself. And that's kind of like the chain of events in his mind. So it always started with him and then led to bringing on people and building a great company one person at a time. You know, what I love about, you know, I read a lot of books and people who listen to the show have heard me say this, but I love a book really strikes me when I can almost read it and go, well, yeah, duh. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. It's like, I love, mm -hmm. I love books that are full of common sense. It's difficult to write a book that is, um, full of common sense and simplistic. And I don't mean simplistic in a bad way. I mean, in a good way where the, yeah, of course it's just, it's stuff that it's almost like it, it, it's something you inherently know, but, it takes a good book or a good leader or somebody to kind of remind you to kind of bring it back to the surface because it's so chaotic now. And I think that's what's so great about this book. And when, you know, I loved it when you open up the first, what really kind of summarizes the book where you have that little kind of Russian parable or that real phrase, if you chase two rabbits, you will not catch either one. And that really summarizes the book, right? This is what it's about. Let's talk about the, the genesis of the book and what it's about. Um, fundamentally, uh, well, thank you for saying those kind words. I mean, I think it's hard to keep big ideas simple, and I think people yeah. are kind of, they want to make it more complicated to make it feel more important. I know. But if you want people to take action, you got to keep it simple. So I took all of those as compliments, so thank you. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing, we've been working on this for, I guess, five years now, it's a book for busy people. Um, I think that in our lives today, we've are a generation of human beings and business people that face more opportunity and more challenges than anyone else. And you look around and you have all of these things on your to-do list. Um, we're pretty much overcommitted on our calendars. Um, even our kids, you know, I've got a seven-year-old and an eight-year-old, and they make backpack, back, backpacks for kids that roll now so they won't hurt their backs because of all the homework to take uh, home. Right. And I'm just like, good night, where does it end? So um, we felt like there was a need a real need to help people have a filter for making better choices so that they could actually do less and achieve more. And I know that sounds trite, but that really is what the book's about. Instead of going for two rabbits, pick one that matters most and you'll catch that sucker and then go after the other one. It's really about the metaphor we use is lining up your dominoes. Yeah. Um, then just do it one at a time. 
Yeah, I love the, that part in there about the domino effect. Talk about that because it, it is amazing. If you think about it, it's a, <clears throat> it's almost, it's not exponential. How did you write it in there? Ge- it's a geometric and how one domino can topple. Talk about that. I love that part in the book. Well, it's a metaphor we ended up kind of backing into. Um, it's funny, before this book, we'd never used those phrases in our lives. But one of the fundamental ideas of the book is that success is sequential, not simultaneous. A lot of people look at someone who's successful that's in good shape, that, you know, um, they're a good speaker and they're a good writer and they're a good business person, and they go out and try to do all those things at once. And the reality is if you study that human being, they probably did those things. They focused on each of them for a period of time, acquired a new set of skills, and then moved to the next. It's sequential. And so it just kind of was obvious to us that, well, the metaphor for that is a domino run. Um, you do one thing at a time, and sometimes that one thing, if you pick the right one, will make many things happen. So, like, the two cool stories that came out of that, there's this group in the Netherlands, and the world record for lining of dominoes is right now at 4.5 million dominoes, which is kind of breathtaking. It is breathtaking. (laughs) However long it took to line those up. But for me, the point is, once you've got your dominoes lined up, one little simple action unleashes all of this energy. And I think we got kind of geeked out on it. That's like 94,000 joules, or the equivalent of you or I doing 550-something push-ups. Wow. So you unleash all of this energy with this one tiny act. And so we were following that vein, and then we discovered this guy, Lorne Whitehead, and I think this is what you were referring to. Yeah. He wrote an article um, in 1983 and where he had discovered that a domino could knock over a domino that was 50% larger. So a two-inch domino, that's pretty much the standard size, can knock over a three-inch, can knock over a four-and-a-half-inch, and so on. And he actually built them, I think, up to the tenth or ninth domino. And so the last domino was as big as a door. So you have this one little tiny domino that starts a chain reaction that, as he described it, began with a, a subtle pick and ended with a loud slam. And um, we kind of went a little bit farther. We thought, if you could just make those dominoes and keep progressing it, how far could you take it? And I think by the 31st domino, you're 3,000 feet above Everest. Yeah. And by the 57th, you're actually almost bridging the distance between the Earth and the moon. It's a geometric progression. It just gets so much faster, so much bigger than you would think in such a short period of time. Well, I think it's a great way to begin the book and a great way to put the analogy that, you know, one little thing can can start a chain reaction of events that that you don't even, you can't even imagine what the possibilities could be. So I think it's a great way to start the book. I think, you know, the, one of the missions of this podcast, and I say it in, in my mission statement, is it's the pursuit of the truth and common sense. And what I love about the book, one of my favorite part of the books, is when you go into really part one and about the lies. I'd like to spend a lot of time talking about those because I think they're so important. You know, so much of, of becoming a successful leader, you know, getting self-mastery over yourself is getting rid of limiting beliefs. I mean, all of us struggle with limiting beliefs, and I think sometimes we don't even know some of the limiting beliefs we, we think they're truths. You do a great job in the book of of derailing a lot of these perceived uh, truths, and they're actually lies. So can, can we go th- – you mind if we go through s- some of these? Oh, absolutely. We tried to kind of list them in the order that people were challenged by them. And so the first lie that we kind of identified is this sense that everything matters equally. And so everything matters equally is a lie. And I don't think many people on Astrid in particular are going to argue for that. But 
let me explain how it kind of shows up. When you have a to-do list that's too long, when you're overcommitted on your calendar, you know, you're the kids off at soccer practice, trying to race home for dinner, you know, you're trying to get all these things done at once, you're a little bit like the character in the horror movie that runs up the stairs instead of out the front door. Right. You know, when you're, when you're harried by your obligations, I believe, and I think the research shows that you make kind of poor decisions. And the way it manifests for me in my personal life is that I start looking at my to-do list, and instead of doing the most important thing, I try to do the things that I can do the fastest. Mm -hmm. You get caught in this game of checkoff, and when you do that, you're treating all this stuff like it matters equally. And I think that's where it shows up in the lives of busy people. Yeah. I agree with that a lot. And I'm guilty of that. I was guilty of that early on, you know, because you didn't want to tackle the, the important things, the difficult things, the things that required some pain or maybe even some conflict. And you, you got used to giving a false sense of accomplishment because you're getting through this to do list. And it's mm -hmm. such a time waster, really, when you think about it. You think you're making progress because you're checking things off. Right. But really, most of the time, if you just did one or two things that mattered most, all the other stuff would just become unnecessary. Yeah. So the, the counterpoint to the lie, you know, we always try to bring kind of the truth to it. And I'm sure your listeners are familiar with Pareto's Law, the 80-20 principle. Sure. And it's this idea that 20% of what you do gives you 80% of your results. And it's a pretty well-accepted kind of idea of looking at how results happen. And... We could go through that story, but our point is we just want you to go to your to-do list and have all the things that you could do and should do, immediately focus in on the things that you should be doing and bring priority to it. Just number your list. What's the first thing that I should be doing? You know, you stop and line up those dominoes. And whatever's number one is the domino run that's the longest. This is the thing that if I did it first, it would have the most beneficial impact on my business. And you just start your day there. And the people who do get the most done, even if they have a really long list of things that didn't get done, that stuff doesn't matter if you do the most important stuff. Yeah. I shifted early on, and I used to teach and still teach my folks that, look, it's not a to-do list, it's a priority list. And you take it even one, one step further. I like what you did and, and highlighted, okay, even take that priority list and then apply the 80-20 principle to that as well until you eventually just get down, like you said, to one thing, and and that can really start you can, I can instantly see how you can start being more productive. Well, I, I did this in a class recently. I had them, um, we were at an annual convention, and, you know, you go to these learning conventions, and people have their notebooks full of notes of things they're going to do when they get home. So I said, we, we, just do me a favor. List out the five or six things that you've already said. I'm going to do this when I get home. It might be read a book. It might be make a change in your business. It might be have a fierce conversation with an individual. Just write those down. And then the second step, now I want you to prioritize them. If you could only do one, which one would it be? And they took a second to do that. Then I asked them to take that number one thing, and this is how achievers do this, I believe. It's just I'm breaking it out into steps. Yeah. Take your number one thing. Now break that in to the four or five things that you'll have to do to get that done. Yeah. And now I want you to prioritize those. And then the kind of comedic part was I asked them, now take number one, and I want you to do it again. And everybody kind of groaned. Like, oh, this is hard work. Mm -hmm. But my point is, the people who get stuff done, who lead the most profitable businesses, they've gotten this down to where they don't have to actually do the math. They just do it. And they break down kind of an idea, like I'm going to lead generate for my business. 
they break it through those stages to, I'm going to call the last 20 customers who bought for me and ask them for a referral. They break it down to the most highest priority activity, and then they do that thing. Yeah. No, it's good, great advice. And I think that, too, it applies to where I see a lot of people kind of wrapped up. To me, it applies not only to to-do lists, but also to the email, because everybody seems so chained to the email, and they feel like they got to uh-huh. answer everything. You know, I'm, I am so anti-email these days. You know, I hardly answer anything by email, because most of it's junk. Uh, more than 80% of it's junk, or more than 80% of it is a time waster. Uh, well, I think I, I heard a guy, and I'm trying to think of his name. It's Scott, and I'll think of it shortly. He's a project manager at Microsoft, and he gave me this analogy at South by Southwest. He said, if you want to experience a time machine, go into the office and start your day with email. You'll look up, and it'll be two hours later. You've magically been transported two hours into the future, having accomplished almost nothing. <laughs> and the point is, the way I would always say it is, if you start your day in email, you essentially handed your agenda over to the world. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Um, so I like to, to the habit that I try to follow, and we talk about this in the book, when you know your one thing... I make an appointment with myself on my calendar. We call it time blocking to go do that. And we almost always do it first thing. That's the first thing I'm going to accomplish in my work tomorrow if that works out. So when I show up in my office, what I try to do is I open up my calendar and say, what did I think that I was going to be doing today? What is the most important thing for me? And I try to do that before I get lost in email. Yeah. And that or I try to put a very sharp time limit on it. There's a program called Egg Timer that you can put on your computer Sometimes if I know that there are urgent things out there, other people are waiting on me to start their day, I might put a clock on it. I've got 20 minutes to clean out my inbox. Yeah. And it's really funny. When you put a time limit on it, you go through there with such efficiency that you don't end up wasting all that time. Yeah, and I think, too, I, I got that from I think Tim. Are you familiar with Tim Ferriss' 4-Hour Workweek? You know, a lot of people, he talks about that kind of same thing that you did about the emails. He just set out a time, you know, the specific times, and maybe it's only 20 minutes a day, and that's it. And you'll be surprised at how much. It, it, what's surprising to me when I started doing what you said, you know, similar, is how um, much more you got done, but also how a lot of that stuff that you thought was important, it doesn't even matter. You know what I mean? It's almost like noise. No. It's like noise. And uh, Noise. Yeah. I drop into my email about three times a day. I usually do it either before I get to work um, or once I – my time block starts usually at 8.30. Um, so I'll try to just have that very limited window to make sure there's truly not a fear in my business that becomes my priority. Right. Otherwise, that all gets delayed until about noon, and I'll usually do that during the lunch hour and try to knock out some of those less important things or just move things forward or onto my calendar. And then at the end of the day, I'll make sure that nothing else has showed up. But in between those are the blocks of time that I try to get work done. And one trick, I had at one point 14 different course writers that reported to me. Yeah. Um, I think 14 total employees, so a few of them were researchers. And they were always copying me on their emails which creates this giant bulk of emails, right? Right. And I just kind of figured out, if you work in an office environment where you you can, I stopped answering an email. I would just walk to someone's desk and get people's attention and say, let's just talk this through right now. Yeah. And by taking three minutes to actually get face-to-face, I eliminated like 20 emails. Yeah. I've done Yeah, um, I've done the same thing, and it's, you're exactly right. Always face-to-face uh, if you can. Let's talk about multitasking. That's another big pet peeve of mine. You know, I love what you said in there, and it's almost like we brag about, "Hey, I'm a great multitasker," and, <laughs> and uh, it's really a lie, isn't it? 
It really is. It, it dumbs down your work and it makes everything take longer. But we've created this culture of multitasking, and it's it's just slowly. I think the there's research now coming to this for the last two years. It's starting to unwind that, but you still people, you still hear people arguing for it, and you still hear women like you know my wife for years while we were writing this book would still say, yeah, the women are better than men. <laughs> but there's no science to back that up. Um, there's a guy named Clifford Nass, and we kind of started the chapter, I believe, with his research. He was a, a scientist at Stanford. And, you know, you think about scientists, you think about kind of focused guys, and everybody was talking about how good they were at multitasking, and he just didn't think he was very good. So he designed a study not to disprove multitasking, but to actually figure out what they did so well so that they could do it. So he got a big group of students together, and he grouped them into people who said they weren't any good at multitasking, and he called them low multitaskers, and a group that were high multitaskers. They said, I'm really good at this, and he gave them a battery of tests. And I'll quote him what he said he discovered. Multitaskers were just lousy at everything. They're suckers for irrelevancy. And what's astounding is in every single test, the low multitaskers outperform the high even on a task of multitasking. You know, you know, thinking about this, I was just, I cut back every six months, I got to go to recurrent training for the aircraft that I fly. You know, and as pilots, we talk about, oh, we're going to be good multitaskers. But it's funny when you start getting the emergencies and you start compounding the emergencies and you're putting it on somebody. If you're, if you're not sitting up in one of the two seats, if you're kind of watching back and you can see everything happen, it's amazing that how well you think you're doing and all the little things that you miss because you're trying to focus right. on too many things. And the the successful pilots, the ones that get through it, is that they focus, like you said, going back to what we were talking about there about the priorities, is you focus on the most immediate thing first. And if you do that in a logical step-by-step, then everything falls into place. But the ones that try mm-hmm. to feel like they got to balance everything, it just goes to hell in a handbasket in short order. So, yeah, I agree with you. I think you know, what's funny is we actually read, I think, two different books on piloting multitasking and some of the history on that. And when lives are at stake, you're a pilot and you have passengers, they try to avoid it. I mean, that's one of the reasons there's a co-pilot there. That's right. Right? To make sure that you're not missing something vital when all of these different things are whirling. I have no idea what you're doing up there in the pilot, you know, in the cockpit. But I do get the sense that there's a lot happening at once and you have to get good at identifying the priority for your attention. I think the, the other kind of interesting thing about multitasking, if, if doing it, you kind of dumb down your work. You're not going to do it as well. The other kind of statistic that from a leadership perspective stood out for me is that today's modern workers, we lose about 28% of our day to switching between tasks. And the the way it got broken down for me, we ended up reaching out to the researcher. He says that when you think you're you're multitasking, you're actually switching back and forth. They actually call it switch tasking. And there's this moment where you decide, I'm folding clothes, I'm going to watch the TV. And that's the switch, and it happens instantaneous. But what people don't understand is that the rules for the two activities are different, and your brain, there's this lag where it accesses the new rules before it does the new activity, yeah. and it's that lag that creates all this lost time. So people who are multitasking are taking anywhere from 25 to 100% longer to do everything that they're doing. And being at a computer with a cell phone, you know, buzzing and your tweets popping up, that's where that 28% of your day is just getting lost. And it was Gary that pointed out, he goes, he has a lot of employees, right? 
He goes, if I could get people focused, I could eliminate one-fourth of the people in the building and still achieve the same results. Or I could boost my results by a quarter because people were actually doing their job. And it's significant. Multitasking costs time and effectiveness. And how we got to a culture of doing it, I don't know. I don't either. I think, you know, I think a lot of these tools that we think we're going to save a lot of time, they just, they just compound, right? I mean, the smartphones, the, the email, the everything, you know, everything was supposed to become paperless. It just creates more stuff. And you're right. And I think, you know, when I'm <clears throat> not flying and I'm back in the office and I got to sit there and, and, and like in the book, you talk about, you hear things, you hear people eating potato chips or whatever. And you just in your, then your cell phone buzzes because you're getting a text from your wife or whatever. And, and it's hard to, it's amazing how little really when you look about it. And I, and I've, I've done this. I've walked around and looked at the places that I've worked and there's so much non-productive work happening at any given moment. So much. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Well, that's a, it's a huge thing. Um, there's a great article in the Harvard Business Review. I think it was last month where they kind of hooked up two people, um, and kind of monitored this. And so the person who was actually really, really focused, 85% of their day, they were being productive. They still switched 277 times. Wow. But the, so, like, there's a part of us that's hardwired to do this. We get distracted easily. And in a modern environment with all these things going off, it's going to happen. People are going to look over your cube and say, hey, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. Do you have a minute to grab coffee? And then we have everything else. So it's a really hard thing. Even when you're being focused, you're switching that often. It's a really, really tough thing to combat. Um, one of the tips I could share with you that my friend Ben Kinney shared with me, he's a big technologist and owns a tech company out in Bellingham, Washington. The first thing he did is he walked me through how to turn off all the notifications on my iPhone. It took like an hour to do. Wow. But I was, I, I couldn't believe it. I have small kids, so there's also like little games on there like they, that want to buzz you to feed a dinosaur or whatever, right? Right. But I didn't need Facebook notifications showing up. If I need to go to Facebook, I'm going to decide when I'm going to do that, not let the phone draw me in. So just turning off, I turned off everything, the calendar reminders, it vibrates when I get a text, and it will ring when I get a phone call. Everything else is secondary, and it just doesn't happen anymore, and I can't tell you how liberating that alone was. Yeah, that's good advice. You know, I started doing that too. I turned off the, you know, the the vibration of the BlackBerry, the iPhone when an email came through because you just felt compelled to. And then you know, eighty percent of the time, it's you know either spam or something useless. You know. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about self discipline too. That's another one. I'm going to get through a couple more of these. That's when I was surprised about this one, but I, I have to. I mean, I agree with it when I was reading the chapter. But you know, coming from the Marine Corps and everything else, it was all about discipline and everything else. But really, you know. Tell me why a disciplined person who leads a disciplined life is a lie. The, um, I think we get discipline wrong. I think when we imagine discipline, we think it's all this mental energy, right, to do things, when in fact it's training. And you hit it on the head. You, you, I saw the simplified, so I'm guessing you're in the Marine Corps, is yes. that correct? Uh-huh. So Marine Corps, you've got training, and it's that training that creates habitual behavior in your life. Uh, I taught this book in Nashville, and a guy showed up an hour and 15 minutes early. And I was like, wow, you get the early bird award. Um, and he laughed, and I introduced myself, and he said, you know, I'm always early to everything. And I said, really, tell me about that. He goes, yeah, it drives my wife crazy, but for 14 years, I was in the Special Forces. And I was trained to show up early and observe, and I can't break the habit. And that, to me, is an example of discipline. He had training that created a habit that was 
working for him, certainly in the military. It might be working against his marriage if they're showing up an hour early for a movie. <laughs> right. But it's a habit. And so when we talk about needing more discipline, we actually just need to harness it and direct it. And if you figured out, like, the one thing for your career, for your business that matters most, what we want people to do is instead of thinking they have to be disciplined everywhere, focus their energy on forming a habit around doing that one thing. For most salespeople, it's, it's, it's lead generating. In real estate, we tell people to spend four hours a day in the morning trying to get new business. And if they do that, everything else will be easier or necessary. I'm a writer, right? I have to spend four to six hours a day writing or I'm not going to get ahead. I won't get books finished. And we've finished now 17 different editions in the last 12 years. You do that by time blocking that. And we made it a habit. I just know that when I get to the office at a certain time, we did from 10 to 4. My brain kind of goes into creative mode, and people know that they can't knock on my door. It's closed. And whatever your career is, we just want you to form that habit. Um, probably the coolest thing is, I don't know about you, but I've always read that it took 21 days to form a habit. Mm-hmm. And I've read that in lots and lots of books, but if you remember in this chapter, we found that group at the College of New London in Australia, and they kind of figured out something else. They had asked all these graduate students to take on new health habits and then track them. And it didn't matter whether it was like eight glasses of water or quitting smoking or going to the gym. They just asked them two questions. Did you do it and how hard was it? And what they discovered, that it got as easy as it was ever going to get, the habit formed on day 66. Yeah. That kind of blew me away because all my life, if I've been thinking about I want to acquire a new habit, I'm going to floss my teeth or whatever, I'm pretty much taking my foot off the gas a third of the way through the journey. Yeah. You know, I just, it just hit me and I was thinking about it. I used to be a pretty big runner. I used to run all the time and, and then I stopped and for a few years I've been trying to get back into the running game again. And the problem is it, um, it's so hard. I hate it. You know, in the beginning I hate running. It's so painful (laughs) and it's no fun, but you know, thinking about that 66 day mark, I kind of remember it took me about a couple months once you got past two months, it almost became, it was so, it was easier to run than to not. Does that make sense? Right. Because it became a habit. That's what you're saying. That's the whole point of what you're saying out there. And that's what, if you can get it to the point where it's a habit, it's not as, yeah. You have to work to build a habit. It takes right. that idea of discipline. But once you form it, the habit does a lot of the work for you. Right. So if you know your most important thing, it's the number one thing for your health is to go running. And you can develop that habit so that your natural inclination is to bounce out of bed and put on your running shoes without really thinking about it or fighting it. How good would that be for your health? Absolutely. We want that for your business, too. The thing to understand, too, about it is that the effort never goes completely to zero. So I think about things like running um, and working out is one that I think always takes a certain amount of effort, even when it's really a good habit. Because think about when you go on vacation. All you have to do is break the habit for like a week, and it feels like you have to go all the way back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're aware of that and go into it knowing it, well, then you might choose to take your running shoes on vacation, and you might choose to act differently, at least to be aware of it. But that was a big aha for me as well. Yeah, I like that. Well, and then writing is a perfect example, too. It's, you know, it's painful to write, but if you keep eating that habit, you get the momentum. It's like you said, the hard stuff becomes habit, and the habit makes the hard stuff easy. 
right? Yep. You work. You work for the to build the habit for the stuff that's good for you, and then those things start working for you. And that's mm-hmm. just the way I try to look at it. You know, you talk about writing. I love. I think it's Hemingway that said it. Writing is easy. You just sit at the typewriter and bleed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Um, oh man, it's tough. Yeah, I know. I try. I mean, I'm. I mean. I've gotten better at it, but man, it just, that's, that's the other thing. It's very painful to write. Well, do you want to try to tackle willpower? Cause yeah. Because I kind of think of these as kissing cousins. I like that one. Um, yeah, go ahead. You know, the idea that willpower is always on will call, we said that's a lie. And it really comes from this idea, there's a will, there's a way. And frankly, when people say, I need more discipline, I think they're actually talking about willpower. Mm-hmm. Willpower is the mental energy it takes to say yes to what you need to do and no to everything else. And the big aha for us was understanding that willpower is not a character issue. When people fail trying to set a new resolution, it's not about their character. It's about how they're managing their mental power. And Gary came up with the analogy of like it being like the battery on your phone. When you start making decisions, you start running down the battery frighteningly fast. And when it's empty, you kind of go to your default settings. And so um, kind of the, the stat that I remember out of the book was your brain is one-fiftieth of your body mass, but it uses one-fifth of your energy. Mm. That's how, what a, a, a energy hog it is. So if you're not feeding it, you don't have the energy in your bloodstream to actually do this, and you're not doing it at the right time of day, you're not going to make the best decisions. Um, I could keep going on on this. I guess I probably should explain it maybe on a deeper level. One of the, the studies that helps you understand it is people were given a, um, a willpower task. Here, do this thing, and it required them to focus on something that might have been unpleasant, you know, something they didn't want to do but they needed to do. And after doing that for 30 minutes, they were given lemonade. And half the group got lemonade with real sugar, and half of them got lemonade with fake. And the people who got real sugar, who replenished the energy in their bloodstream, because that's what's being drawn down, mm-hmm. did 50% better on the subsequent test. So it's just immediate, the impact in terms of your ability to make good decisions is drawn down. So, like, my huge aha on this was, one... I need to start every day with a very good breakfast, like protein, complex carbohydrates, carbohydrates, things that are going to break down in my bloodstream over a long period of time so I can focus. You know, when my focus breaks, it's because I don't actually have the nutrition in my bloodstream to help my brain do what it needs to do. So the whole point of we lose let – me, let me if I get this straight. We lose our willpower not because we – think about it is because we don't think about it? I think that people don't understand it. It's not a character thing. It's really about timing and nutrition. If you have had a good breakfast, and like I actually keep snacks by my desk now. I keep nuts there, and I have a snack at 10 o'clock in between lunch and dinner just to make sure that I've always got either protein or complex carbohydrates going into the system to kind of make sure that I've got all the energy I need to make great decisions. Um, it's really, we call it food for thought. Um, if you're actually understanding that, you understand that at the very beginning of the day when you've had a good breakfast, you actually have the most mental willpower of any other point in the day. And over the day, you start draining that down, and you can replenish it pretty quickly by eating properly and having good nutrition. But at the end of the day, you're probably at your low point. And I, I know in my personal life, like with running, 
I've been much more successful running in the morning than I have after work. Right. And yeah. I, I, I tend to be too tired, maybe mentally exhausted, and I don't always make the best decisions. Um, I think moms have gotten this from the beginning of time. What do you do for a small child about 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Give them a nap. Or you give them a snack? snack and a nap, yep. right? You mm-hmm. give them, but a snack is the big one. A snack, yeah. Because, you know, the kid's been, my daughter was this way. You send her to preschool, and I would go and pick her up some days, and the teachers would be like, ah, oh, she was awesome. You know, she did everything you asked her to do. And then she'd get in the car, and she'd proceed to completely melt down. And what happens is these kids, they've spent all of their willpower standing in line, sitting at a desk and being still, and then they get in the presence of someone who unconditionally loves them, and they immediately let all of that out. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, we always were like rushing to get her a snack. I sometimes would have them in the car. Here, honey, here's some walnuts, and she loves nuts and berries. And get her to snack and replenish that willpower so she could behave. It's not even fair for little kids that don't even understand this at all. But it's kind of like now we need to take that advice and apply it to ourselves. How many people do you know that at 3 o'clock when they hit that energy low, they actually grab a cup of coffee instead of a snack? Yeah, almost everybody. Right, and all you're doing there is just opening up the capillaries and draining down the energy you have even faster. Wow, so that's interesting, you know, and it makes sense. I mean, but who would have thought, you know, the whole idea of willpower was, you know, kind of tied to nutrition and and feeding your body? You know, I guess, I mean, it makes sense, but, you know, I've never even looked at it that way. I think, I don't know that it matters tremendously unless you're going for big. You know, the subtitle on the book is Extraordinary Results, The Surprisingly Simple Truth Behind Extraordinary Results. I think if you're going after average, it doesn't matter. But the people that I know who are really striving to be as efficient as possible in their office life, to really get things done, to move their business forward, those energy levels just don't work for them. Yeah. And they eventually will back into some sort of solution. I've talked to people, and they're like, you know what? You know, I used to have coffee, but I've started now having like an apple between meals. And without even knowing the science behind it, they actually have really hit on a great solution for bridging the gap. And um, I think the people who are really focused on high achievement, this becomes a concern. If they're going to get work eight hours, they want to get eight hours of work out of that. I know I do. I'm away from my wife and kids, and I've got small ones, so I know that time is precious. I don't want to be working until 10 o'clock at night. I want to come in here, and I want to perform. I want to get home and not have a cloud of undone work hanging over my head. Well, guys, Jay, this is such a fun book. I, I highly recommend it. I mean, I read a, I read a lot of books. I'm, I've never read more in my life with all these interviews. I'm probably reading three books a week, which I never thought was even possible. But this one was fun. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, this one was fun because it, uh, um, it does challenge a lot of those myths and those quotes. And we didn't even get into all of them. But I mean, that's I can't I can't tell you how fun this book is, and it and it highlights some truths and some myths that I think is well worthwhile. You guys should be uh, proud of your accomplishment. Well done. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I love, if you can't tell, I love talking about it. I could go on for hours and hours. Yeah, well, you know, maybe we'll have to have you come back and we'll talk about some more of these other things. Like I said, I think everybody out there, I know I am, I'm I'm all about trying to do something big, bigger than myself, improving myself, um, and leadership is certainly wrapped up into that. And I think this is a great book to help people kind of get rid of some limiting beliefs and kind of maybe start changing some of the status quo in their own personal lives. Awesome. 
Well, Jay, where can they find you? What? Uh, how can they they get a hold of you? Learn more about the book. Where's a good place? If to they want to check out us or the book. Um, we have a website. It's called theonething.com, and that's with the number one. The one thing with the number one dot com, and the book is available at all bookstores right now. Um, we just hit number one on Amazon and number three on the New York Times, so I would expect that almost all booksellers would carry this book at this point. Yep, and I'll have links to when I put the post to the podcast. I'll have links to all the websites and uh, to to the, the Amazon as well. So, Jay, thanks awesome. for coming on the show. It was really fun. Thank you so much for having me, and I look forward to future podcasts with you. All right, Jay, take care. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.